It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 53, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Patrice Gross of Foundation Farm on the Arkansas-Missouri state line. Patrice farms on just a half an acre of beds without ever tilling the soil, and while it sounds like gardening, he's definitely farming, grossing $80,000 a year from the crops he grows. And it's worth noting that Patrice keeps a pretty sharp pencil and rakes in a 70% profit margin doing all of his farming in just three mornings a week with a small crew. And I do want to emphasize the no-till farming that Patrice does isn't just an occasional no-till crop here and there. He doesn't own a tractor or a tiller and doesn't even use a broad fork on his soils. Founded in 2006, Foundation Farm builds on 10 years of experimentation with various methods for growing organic vegetables and markets its produce through farmers markets, retail stores, and a small CSA. We dig into, or rake into as the case may be, the details of how he manages his system, from scheduling and weed control to fertility management. Along the way, we explore how Patrice has planned his farming operation around his family's needs, how he evaluates crop profitability, and his efforts to balance productivity and quality of life with his employees. I enjoyed being challenged by Patrice's approach to farming, which turns a lot of what I think about right on its head. I hope you'll get as much out of it as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers Web allows you to streamline wholesale ordering and operations, making it easier to work with your buyers, reducing costs, and increasing your capacity. FarmersWeb.com. Patrice Gross, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, Chris. So glad that you could be here today. How's how's the weather down there in Arkansas today? Oh my God, it's so warm. You know, we just <laughs> we just wonder what's going on here. I think tonight we'll be in the fifties, which is kind of crazy for us. So, yes, it's uh, quite a bit of a kind of unusual, warm, not so unusual anymore, but still unusual, warm uh, winter so far. A little bit hard to get used to. So, um, so Patrice, I think you've got such an interesting farm, and I've, I've given a little bit of background about your no-till approach and, and kind of the scale that you're operating on and the fact that you are actually running a farm and not a garden. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all evolved? Well, from the very start, I, I wanted to make this a way of making a living. This was never meant to be a second, you know, kind of hobby type of activity. So that was very um, much a goal to quit my previous career and then engage into this new thing, which was going to be a lot more than a career, of course, because it, it, it was quickly uh, clear that it was an absolute passion for me. And so... A book that really got me on, on the right tracks was a book by Scott Nearing, uh, The Good Life, which um, I think some people might have read. It's the book that inspired a lot of people back to back to the land types in the 60s. And Scott was saying, you know, you can absolutely make a living on the land. Uh, it's doable, and this is how we do it. And he did something else. He said, you know, make sure you line yourself up with your lifestyle, in which case, in his case, it was a very simple uh, land-based lifestyle, and we loved, we embraced the whole thing. We uh, started with a very uh, cute um, setup with a farmhouse, 12 acres, but um, I, was, I was going to farm all day long you know, and, and, and really uh, match our, our needs to what I was doing with the land, and uh, we did this for many years. 
the thing that happened though is um, as we evolved as a family, as we um, became four people, and um, we sort of lost a little bit that original um, connection to the land and innocence about um, what we needed to do. And we started to be a little more, I guess, our budget started to increase. And uh, I think what happens is along the, the years, um, our lifestyle became more and more complex. We had to move to a town, so kind of we left uh, the, the, the very uh, pure setting that we had in the country. We moved into a place where we had a lot more expenses. Meanwhile, I was always wanting to farm, so the farm became more and more um, uh, sizable, and I had to do more and more work uh, to the point where it became uh, you know, the place it is now. So right now, I'm farming five acres, which is um, mostly vegetable uh, annuals. And um, I um, do this, of course, on a neutral basis. And I gross, you know, at this point, I'm around $80,000 a year, which is quite a bit more than I used to, you know, do uh, in the past, of course. But uh, this is about where we need to be in order for us to be sustainable, given the lifestyle that we have acquired, or you know. And, and basically, right now, we're reaching the peak of that because my kids are just reaching college age. And college comes at a cost, as we all know. Uh, my daughter goes to Cornell. She's not exactly... The cheapest place to be. So we are we're on the hook for you know roughly ten thousand dollars, which is really a good deal. You know she she was uh, uh, she did very well, got a scholarship, and, and then we have our son coming in. So be another ten thousand dollars. So all that really makes my farming uh, a little heavier than it used to be. And so that that eighty thousand dollars off of the five acres. How many of those five acres are you actually? Farming. I mean, like, how much of that's actually in in your no-till beds? Okay, that's right. Because the five acres, you know, it means, it means absolutely nothing. This just the five acres is the kind of template around the farm. That's what that's the land that um, captures the whole thing. That if you measure the amount of square footage that I use that are actually cultivated and grown on, then we're looking at twenty-four thousand square feet, which is roughly half an acre. So the amount of ground that I utilize in order to grow my plants, my crop, is half an acre, from which I derive $80,000 worth of sales. When we talked a couple of weeks ago, I think the profit margin that you quoted was up around 75%. Um, actually, probably more 70, like 70%. Okay. So, so because, you know, the growth is, is really not uh, relevant to, to the real need for a family, what counts is the net. I needed about fifty thousand dollars, you know, to live to live on, uh, based on our lifestyle that we arrived at. So yeah, that's that's basically my numbers. Wow, because I mean, those those are not not typical numbers for somebody operating on your scale, and in particular, I mean, if we're really talking about a half an acre of land that you're that you're actually farming farming, um, that's those that's impressive. You know, there's a lot of. um, other examples of farms that are very successful, quote unquote, and they have to get to that net. They have to go way past one hundred thousand dollars, you know, all the way to one hundred fifty, um, which of course means you have to work that much more. Now, the reason that there are many reasons why I have such a profitable format, and uh, it all comes from the no-till approach. 
Um, my big uh, inspiration for Nokia is Kukulka's book, One Strong Revolution, which is sort of a very uh, abstract kind of book, but it is a beautiful book um, that really, really uh, um, made a huge impact on me early on. And if you read Fukuoka, uh, if you really read and, and read, it, read him again and really get under his skin, the main message is not really a technical message. It's a message of looking at your um, task, at your working life, and really approaching it in a sort of a Zen way where you try to reduce the tasks to the essential ones and to actually try to um, uh, eliminate some of the tasks. So it's like the no-do, you know, the no... The, 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 okay, and I'll give you some examples. In a neutral approach, obviously, the first note that you hear is a till, no till. So I do not use machines. I do not touch my soil. The only thing that um, gets to my soil is a rake to prepare the bed and, and horse trowels and transplanting small little devices or transplants. So no machines. So that's one big no. Uh, a second note is I don't do any compost, so I can also claim that I, I'm a no compost farmer. Uh, my composting happens in in the bed themselves. There's a whole system where all the decaying organic matter that is happening on the surface of the bed that can include uh, the decaying plants, the dead plants, uh, the mulch, uh, always gets parked in places on the sides of the bed, which allows the composting to happen. The, the, the decay to happen, but I do not actually have a composting ability or activity, I should say. And then another no, uh, act, no sort of activity that I do not have is uh, the cultivating activity, which is huge. I mean, weed management, of course, is uh, some people claim that it's 90% of farming. Well, in my whole uh, schedule of work, I would say a cultivation is maybe between at the maximum 10%, maybe more like 5%, I do some hoeing and cultivation that is very, very small amount. So if you bring all those different um, situations, which are an uh, absence of work, you actually, what you do is you reduce your labor, you reduce the need for machines, for, for time spent, and the bottom line of all that, it becomes immensely profitable. When you talk about a no-till farm, I mean, I live in the middle of a sea of corn and soybeans, you know, here in, here in the Midwest. And no-till to my neighbors, I think, I have a feeling it means something very different than no-till means to you. Um, what are you doing instead of tilling the soil? I mean, clearly you're not out there uh, spraying Roundup. Exactly. I mean, the no-till, mostly you, you're mentioning, is a grain sort of based no-till, you know, that some of the Midwestern big farms are you know, starting to look at to combat erosion. But they, they have to use a lot of chemicals. Of course, I'm an organic farm, which I should mention as well. I'm USDA certified, so no chemicals. And um, you know, I'm using permanent bed. I'm not using row crops, uh, row cropping. So the erosion is absolutely zero on my land. Um, my entire grid of bed is surrounded by uh, the original pasture. So that's another aspect of my system where if you are not on the bed, which you're never on the bed, you are essentially walking on a grassy path, which has, uh, which is the original pasture that has been mowed for years and years, and which is beautiful. So I have a grassy, you know, sort of um, uh, situation um, that, um, uh, you know, surround all my beds. And then are you using a, a mulch system 
on your beds? Yes. So how does no-till work? Um, no-till essentially means that I use a lot of organic matter and I layer that organic matter on a regular basis. My main source of organic matter, if I were to rank in terms of bulk and, and use and quantity, is mulch in the form of uh, straw. I could have used something else, but in my area, I have access to a very large wheat farm farms, and therefore I use uh, wheat straw as a sort of mulch. Then another source is also manure. I use rabbit manure once a year, which I just finished doing that today, and had, had to take a bit shower, by the way. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, I finished manuring my 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 bed. It took me you know a very little time, and um. Those are the main, the main bulkiest forms of organic matter. Those are being spread strictly on, on, the, on the surface of the beds. And then they're being played with and toyed with as, as we go through the season, depending on which, on the types of crops that I introduce in each bed. So describe to me how that might work with a, I mean, so let's, let's pick a crop that would maybe typically be transplanted like tomatoes. Um, okay. How how would the process go through the year? Okay, tomato. Okay, look, let's, let's, they're also different. So every crop has a different stance around the mulching and the no mulching. You know, it's not always mulch. Uh, I can say, for instance, before I jump into the tomato part, uh, most of my work with lettuce, which lettuce is a big part of my work, does not include um, mulch. Actually, uh, when lettuce comes in a bed, the mulch, which is on the bed gets to be pushed out, kind of like, imagine like a, a kind of opening curtain. So I just push whatever is on the bed to the side and I use, my beds are four foot wide and I use the half foot space on each side of that bed to, to cramp my uh, decaying uh, organic matter, which is still on the surface of the bed on, the, on that half foot, which leaves me with three feet of space of empty, you know, for, um, of, um, there for to actually introduce my lettuce. But that's just lettuce. Lettuce does not like mulch because it tends to develop uh, a lack of uh, aeration around the base and it actually drives some um, bottom rot, which uh, I just prefer not to do that and, and take a chance for that. But most of the other crops, especially all the summer crops and, you know, like uh, cucumber squash and tomatoes, involve a lot of mulching. So, for instance, let's talk about tomatoes. I have high tunnels. Uh, four of them, which are 100 foot long, so I'm very tunnel uh, intensive. I do a lot of winter work, which is part of my income generation. So I'm really a, a full-blown four-season farmer. I love that. Um, so tomatoes come at the time. I'm very, very um, different. Different. Uh, my system is um, developed uh, very differently. I don't know. I don't know how to explain that, but I, I don't resemble any of the other farms. Um, so the tomatoes will be waiting patiently until June 1st in my uh, strategic you know, planning, which is pretty, pretty late. Why is that so late? Because before June 1st, I have an amazing amount of uh, spring, early spring and late winter work happening in the tunnel, which generates a lot of income. So we're talking about spinach finishing, we're talking about peas, we're talking about baby greens and uh, Japanese turnips and uh, carrots. They're all finishing in April and May in my tunnels. As soon as June 1st comes in, which means it's very warm in the tunnels, come the 
the whole tomato wave, which takes over all the panels. So at that point, what I will do is that is on June 1st, in those beds, I will actually plant my tomatoes, which will be a nice plant, usual as facing, let's say, every two feet. So it will be still bare soil. I will let them grow in that soil, which is very warm because it's exposed for about three to four weeks. They will double up in size. At the point where they're about one foot tall, let's say, I will then bring in the mulch. So here comes my belt, my square belt of straw, and I will mulch the entire, uh, every single bed of tomato in, in those tunnels. And that will be it. And I will never have to look at those tomatoes again. Um, I will actually say that, of course, the tomatoes get to be caged um, and also trailers, depending on, on which situation it is. So, I guess planting into bare soil and then and then mulching later on after the plants are established and have taken advantage of that heat. Yep. Um, so then when the tomatoes come out, I suppose you're you're going back in with some of these, I'm assuming, direct seeded crops like the turnips and the spinach and the carrots. Right. You're talking about September now. Okay. So in September, we're getting ready to, to flip the greenhouses back to the winter or in September, we're getting ready to flip the high tunnels back to the back to the winter crops. Right. Um, which, which so, by the way, my, my tomatoes hate that. You know what I'm saying? What do you mean? They hate when I come in in September because they still want to live. They're fully loaded. Yes. It's, it's a huge, <laughs> dramatic, you know, kind of dilemma that I think some uh, some of the farmers out there can can, can relate to. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah. Taking, taking out stuff that's actually making you money is a little bit difficult. Exactly. Exactly. But my advice to you all, to, to all of you guys that are, is to really make this uh, work based on your calculations of yield and money. Don't, don't make it a sentimental, emotional decision. Make it a money decision. I know it's really hard to pull some beautiful uh, uh, tomato plants fully loaded in, 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 you know, in tomatoes, but just realize that uh, there are some, uh, some, a crop and winter crop that need to be established and get in, you know need to be mature in time for full harvest in, in winter and um, you have to be careful. Well, tell tell us how that goes. Tell us tell us how you go about getting those beds now that are covered in straw and and tomato plants. How do you? I mean, I would come in, pull the tomato plants out, and run a rototiller through there. But right. you're obviously not doing that. No, the beauty of this is something I do, and of course, a lot of those things you discover as you. Actually, uh, you know, as you're playing the flute, you really figure out beautiful things you can do with the flute. So um, as you're playing with that mulch, you're discovering beautiful things to do with it. And so what I do with this mulch at the end of summer, as I'm pulling the tomato out, by the way, those tomatoes are the only plant that are not, they're so bulky, that usually have those plants pulled out. They're not decaying on, on the bed because they're really too messy to stay there for my winter crop. Everything else, which essentially is a mulch, uh, straw, gets pushed, um, especially the one, the beds on the side, they're pushed to the side. And um, I use the mulch, um, uh, the, the, the beds are on the outside of the tunnels are really cold on the outside of the tunnels. So I have a system where I actually have a trench to help with drainage. But in that trench, which is about half a foot, I also push, cramp up all that mulch from the tomatoes into it, and it creates a beautiful, isolating um, little wall of straw, which, you know, kind of um, limits the, uh, the, the 
the impact of the cold side onto the crops inside the bed. Huh. That was a problem in our high tunnels over the winter. I mean, we're quite a bit further north than you, but with the cold creeping in from the, from the edges of the tunnel, that was always an issue for us. Yeah. Um, so imagine something it's hard to imagine, but imagine like all that straw is, is very uh, easily compressed. There's something really beautiful and a little magical about that straw that can be compressed to where it's only occupying half a foot of space. And uh, once you understand that and how you, you, know, you practice using your, your rake to push onto the straw, and then things start to become more obvious. And now you've got that bare soil, um, and, and are you just seeding directly into that? Yes. And then, of course, the soil, I want to say something about it. This is a good time for me to really sort of uh, have a little uh, commercial, you know, can break on this. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> when, you, when you do this, and you open up that that soil is so amazing. It's so crumbly. It's teeming with um, things you don't see, and it's teeming with things you see. Like earthworm activity on my soil is unreal, and I can say that because I see a lot of other farms, and I see the impact of killing, and I see what killing does, which is essentially destroy uh, the microbiology of the soil. And it's hard to really um, tell until you have a a, a neutral soil the difference. If your only um, baseline is a bunch of till, till farm, organic or not, you'll never know. You'll never know what it means to have a no-till uh, soil. You, should, you have to come and see my farm to really tell the difference. And I think that one of the things that sounds interesting about your your system is that, I mean, we talk about no-till up here in, in Wisconsin or Minnesota or Iowa. We're typically talking about tilling for several years and then doing maybe a year or two of not tilling, you know, I mean, like, like I'm thinking about the Rodale system, you know, where, where you're, you're seeding down an annual crop of rye and hairy vetch and then mm-hmm. going over that with a roller crimper and then planting into that. And that's not mm-hmm. something that you continue to do every year. That's like a, that's like right. a one-off thing. And then you would till it up and plant your carrots. And again, this is not what you're talking about. No, and, and frankly, that soil will never be resembling mine. Uh, you will, what well, the best you can get out of this system is a kind of a powdery sort of structure. But the true no-till structure is made of like the, the most pristine and nature-based aggregates, which has this bacterial glue that creates this crumbliness that is not what you get from a till soil. Doesn't matter how much compost you till in. Uh, it doesn't matter how much cover crop you, you play with. You will never get to the structure of material soil. Um, I'm not. I'm not here to say that. Uh, by the way, that tilled farms are bad. I'm not there. I'm not here to say that I can beat their yields. But I'm here to say that in terms of input and in terms of ratio of output to input, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm on top of all that. Well, and I guess when you mention the inputs, that's something that that I'm interested in getting into a little bit. I mean, it's not like you're, it's not like you're producing all those inputs on your farm. How much for for your half acre of beds and for your $80,000 gross in sales, how much straw are you bringing in for that? Okay. Well, it's great. And I, yeah. So yes, I'm not sustainable in that sense. You know, I would have to have a big wheat field out there. I'm probably, you know, maybe 60 acres. Uh, so yes, I do depend on two major inputs from the outside. It's my manure. Which, by the way, um, 
my organic matter, manure is really a, a, a great source of organic matter. It's a full spectrum, you know, micronutrients, trace minerals are in there. So it's nice. I enjoy it. But in terms of my organic matter, I'm now reaching, after 10 years on that land, about 6.5%. This is from a, a baseline of about 2.5% when I started. And this, of course, after harvesting, you know, 25 to 30,000 pounds of uh, produce every year from the same ground. Okay. So to answer your question, I'm sorry. Um, That's okay. And to get back to how many how many bales, I'm talking about square bales. I like square bales a lot better than brown bales because they're easy, so easy to trans, transport around uh, the beds for my people. And I uh, when I started, the, this is a really good story because it tells you a little bit about the microbiology, uh, the evolution of that. When I first got that land, that particular piece of land, I, the first two years, I was using between two and 300 bales a year, every year. So, of course, what happens is like, you know, that um, organic matter, that straw gets digested. That's where the, the, the composting happened, digested down by the microbiology. So it's gone. You have to buy another two or 300 bales the following year. But guess what? After eight years on the same land, I am now, have now reached the five to 600 bale level. <laughs> okay, so that is kind of you know pretty pretty dramatic you know change. Same same exact surface. I'm still you know doing this on twenty four thousand square feet every year, and it's double the amount of um, straw, which means I've doubled the amount of microbiology uh, microbiological activity going on. And this like there's a you know little monsters out there just eating my stuff. Usually, you'd like to think in terms of of reducing your overhead as time goes on, and and here's I mean. Here, here's your reward, right? You get to buy twice as much straw. Right, but, which is a, sort of a drop in the bucket. We're talking about 500 bales of straw, let's say, at $3, so it's 1500 bucks. Uh, the, the manure cost me $600, so my input is $2,000. We divide that into 18000 So, you know, with 2, 2% is, my input is 2% 2 of my, my output, if you're yeah. looking at dollar value. Yeah, and and I mean, really, to talk about I mean, six hundred bales of straw. I mean, on the one hand, that's a lot of straw, and on the other hand, it's just not that much in the larger scheme of things. No. You know, and I think when you talk about sustainability, I mean, I'm not sure that that sustainable vegetable farms, in the sense of you know generating and growing their own nutrients and their own organic matter, I just don't think that's all that common. I think almost everybody's bringing no. in something from the outside in some form or another, either running it through livestock first or putting it directly on the fields. So, right. you know, I think it's. I just think it's it's interesting to to think about that quantity coming in, and and clearly you've decided that's something that you're not you're not interested in trying to grow, you know, have some, have some pasture out back that you're raking and mowing and trying to, trying to bring onto your farm. Have you been, have you always bought in the straw? Yes. And, and you know, it's just a matter of efficiency and um, a matter of uh, workload. You know, I'm focusing on, you know, I, I, my whole farming activity is compressed in three mornings a week. That's all I work. I work three mornings, not three days. So I do my entire work in uh, 15 hours of, um, you know, being present on the field. So that's another aspect, you know, that I should um, maybe mention and which explain why I'm so profitable is because I'm not toiling out there, you know, just spending labor time doing doing what I don't need to do. So my whole um, 
my whole strategy, my whole system depends only on 60 hours, men, uh, hour, women, uh, hour of labor a week. You said you're working 15 and then, and then you've got a few other people to make up a total of 60 hours a week exactly. going into your half acre, $80,000 of production. Right. So it, it really is a, I, I, I really thought about this clearly because, you know, I, when I lecture, people are saying, what, what happens about, can we do this? You know, we capital, blah, blah, blah. So I say it's 60 hours a week. So I do it. I'm worth 15 because I like to work on three mornings a week. And I usually need three more people, which gives me another 15 times three, 45, 45 plus my 15 equals 60. Now, if you're a couple, you know, man and woman or man and man, <laughs> Nowadays, or women and women, and you want to tackle this on your own without any uh, cost of outside labor, be my guest. Do just find 60 hours uh, for divided in two. That's 30 hours for you know working together. That's a good deal too. I would have expected that number to be a lot higher, and 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 I'm curious how much of that is now. You you've been doing this for quite some time. This is not you didn't just start no-till farming two years ago. This is how many years into this? Okay, that that's a good, a good one. Um, it's it's totally uh, it's been eight years in of development, uh, and I'd say before that, twelve years of learning how to quit. I used to be, I learned um, my organic farming with a wonderful guy called Michael Ralph in in uh, near Santa Barbara uh, twenty some years ago, and he taught me so much. But also, he was a killer. Um, Sounds like he was a killer, but he was a killer. And um, we we had many, many, um, many discussions. He was really an inspiration, too, for me. And we, we take walks in the woods. And, and then walking this beautiful forest floor, right, and, and just kind of be in, in wonder of, of this beautiful soil. We would just get down on our knees, get below the pine needles, and, and look at this soil and we're like oh my god this is better than we do and then we were like one of the best little organic farms chilling composting you know and we just couldn't come close to what the the forest was doing next door to us so that's so from that point on i i, I started to really and fukuoka coming in with that to really try to come up with a system that was a, a doable system that system that was making money not just some kind of you know, idealistic, you know, place where you could do this, you know, in a little garden somewhere, but something that was making money. So it took me 20 years, basically. The first 12 years, I was really, was really getting rid of all the killing habits. I used to have a spader. You know what those are, Chris? Oh, yeah. The, the, the thing, the those, the chellies. Yeah. And you move yeah. really, really slowly down the field, going exactly. really deep with them. Yeah. So, so the chelly was kind of a half house deal, you know, like I was not quite out, you know, free completely. So the, the spader was my way of saying, of saying I do not want to kill. I know it's hurting my microbiology. Uh, I'm always, you know, kind of struggling to find ways. So here I was spading my chelly, and then finally I say, okay, I gave my, I sold my chelly to my, you know, friend and neighbor, and I said, and I then I sold my tractor, and I say, okay, now I'm really stuck. Um, now I've got to have to do the whole deal, the, you know, the whole enchilada. <laughs> so you were on now, is that on the piece of land that you're on now? So is this stuff that you were already tilling before you transitioned to no-till? Uh, the, this, you can say, I'll simplify a little bit, that this last piece here that I've been dealing with for eight years is my piece that I, I just stopped using any machine. Yes. Okay. 
Right. So, and, and how long did it take you to get good at it? Good. Okay, great. Okay, the soil, for, for one thing, takes three years. My soil, okay, I, I cannot say that this is going to happen exactly the same way for everyone out there. You know, my soil is loamy. It's got clay in it. I'm not sure how this would work with a very sandy soil. Maybe I'll take a lot more time to build, to bring up the organic matter, blah, blah, blah. So I can really only speak for my uh, soil. But my soil was never magical. It's actually in the soil map, treated as a not really good for agriculture. You know, those, you know they say, I don't have like a, a beautiful bottom land type situation. I really had to work on my soil. My soil was poor. I started with two and a half or three percent organic matter content. And after three years, um, I'd say I really saw a huge difference. Now, if you look at my soil, the, the, the color has turned from, from light brown to this deep, deep, dark, almost black soil. It's really amazing. When you decided to sell the tractor, sell the Chelly Spader, I mean, that feels to me like that must have been a pretty gutsy move. No, because I was already, you know, really on some of the beds, it was a progression. I was not, you know, it was not like a you know, cold turkey thing, you know, like one system to the next. And actually, when I do teach, you know, some of my classes, I always tell people, and I would talk to farmers, I have a sometimes crowd of farmers in front of me. I said, don't, don't just jump off the cliff. Just give yourself one area and start to really put together a series of steps that allows you to not use machine but, and use your usual system on everything else. So I've done that. At the same time I was staying and doing, you know, uh, you know, getting rid of, you know, cover crops, whatever. I was actually coming up with an alternative system, which allowed me to not have uh, any machine. Now, there's one thing that um, I need to, to, to tell you about the system that makes it work. The usual problem with uh, not having a killer is when you get back to your farm and it's, let's say it's March, and you look back at your farm, you either have a mess of weeds on your hands, because you maybe you're not so much on top of things, or you're a big farmer and you have cover crops. You maybe have veg, you know, the usual veg, rye kind of deal, and you need a killer to get rid of it so you can get on with things for spring, right? Okay. right. Are you with me? Yep. Okay, I don't do that. And I, it took me a while to figure it out. So, okay, what? Because I used to try to do a, a winter cover crops, and I, my first strategy for this was to use oats. Now, why would I use oats? Because oats in my area, winter kills. Okay? So I was trying to do a lot of oat work and then I uh, hope that it winter kills, and then I would get back to my bed without having to kill because there would be dead oaks, and I would just break that out and get back on my no-kill system. Well, I actually went one step further. I said, forget even trying to do winter cover crops. And instead, what I do now is I do, I've got my system involves a, a very drastic step, some kind of you know, somewhat radical step in November when I close all my beds from just doing my forward on the outside, you know, not of course inside, I will now do, I'll shut down the bed by adding mulch at that point in time. So all my bed gets a little bit of mulch, not a lot, maybe three, four inches of straw on all the beds, and I will keep them completely covered, protected, with this until I get back to them in March. You, do you get it? Do you get that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, basically you're, you're, 
you're just cloaking the soil with something other than a cover exactly. crop. You're doing doing the mulch instead. And guess what? Guess what nature does in November. Okay, it 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 lets all the leaves fall to cloak to cloak. I like the word cloak to cloak the soil, right? And then guess what happens in uh, March uh, or April when you walk through the woods? You see those beautiful plants, right? Right, pushing the leaves, the mat, yep. you know, the mat, and it's like this gorgeous green. That's why, you know, I'm not at that point yet. I'm not as good as that, but. All right. So, Patrice, we're going to take a break here and get a word from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back, and, and I want to I want to keep digging into some of these nuts and bolts of, like, how do you do this? Because I have about 10,000 objections based on okay. everything that I know about farming. So uh, we're going to get a word from our sponsors and be right back. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost. That means you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two basic parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very, very intentional about the inputs they put into their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose, whether it's the chips of ocean blue granite or the kelp that provides provides micronutrients and a little smell of the ocean. Fully compost to compost, top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production, combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming is, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmers Web, small business software for farmers. Farmers use Farmers Web to streamline work with wholesale buyers such as restaurants, schools, corporate kitchens, distributors, and retail stores, making working with each buyer easier and increasing the number of buyers your farm business can work with. Taking orders by phone or email, collating them into spreadsheets, and entering them into an accounting program for invoicing takes time that you could be spending on farming and sales or anything other than office work. With Farmers Web, your wholesale customers can place their orders online, or you can take the orders over the phone, by email, or in person and enter them in yourself. You can define different payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and product catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or buyer payments by credit card go right into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help facilitate arrangements with third-party logistics providers or help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your cost, and and you can pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. Farmers Web is available to farms, food hubs, and local food artisans nationwide. FarmersWeb.com. All right, and we're back with, with Patrice Gross from Foundation Farm in, in northern Arkansas. And so, Patrice, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm, and I'm just, I mean, my farmer head is kind of going like, okay, I know how to do things with a rototiller, and I know how to do things, you know, you till up the soil, and you run the cedar through it, and you, you mm -hmm. know, you 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 go in with a broad fork or with the yeoman's plow and you get things deep and 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 you're kind of turning all of that on its head. I can you can you kind of again we we kind of went down this road with the tomatoes, but I'd I'd like again to kind of just walk through how the cropping season works. Can I do onions, for instance? Because it's a good example. Yeah. Okay, Let's onions. do onions. All right. 
Uh, onions are kind of an April 1st thing for me here. Um, now, onions, I like to work with plants, okay? Some people like said, I like plants. I put them in trenches, and I put them about, you know, two inches apart. And I do about 10,000 onions. You know, I can count them because in some small, and still a small farm. So 10,000 10, onions, I don't know how that compares to other farms. It's kind of, you know, good amount. Um, so to start with, I don't have to worry about the, the tilt of the soil because when I get back to those beds, which are winter beds outside, the, the, the structure, the, the, the crumbliness, the tilt of the soil is absolutely, you know, as good as tilled. Except it doesn't look, doesn't feel like powder. It feels like crumble. But you can take a little trencher. So I will take a trencher, which is kind of a uh, a tooth-like little metal, which will go maybe two inches down, very very surfacey. I mean, two inches. That's about as deep as I get on my soil. Which, by the way, I uh, for people out there that are wondering about uh, onions, I think onions don't need to be put in deep. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, I don't know what you think, Chris. What do you think about that? I, we always found putting them in shallow worked right. better because they kind of want to grow on the top of the soil anyway. Exactly. So an old-timer that had been doing onions for, I swear, 60 years, I mean, it was beauty. You know, I just, I said, tell me, tell me, what, tell me something about onions that I should know about. He said, Patrice, keep them very shallow. So I said, okay, great. So, um, so I go in there on a bed. So this is where, you know, it, it gets a little bit technical. So I've got, I, I need to open up my mulch, right? I, I, crunk, I crumble or cramp up my uh, um, whatever decayed matter. There's manure in there. Remember now, I have manure um, all those beds in January. I just finished that today. And um, so the manure goes into the, onto the half uh, foot on each side of the, of the bed, so either side. I have this. Mulch, old mulch from winter, from last year, decayed plants. It might be some crumbled um, peppers or uh, whatever, you know, whatever plants in there, kale. Or, all of that is in there. Then it leaves me about three feet. In that three-foot wide space, I can uh, introduce four lines of onions. So what I will do, so it's like, right now we are April 1st, and between April 1st and May 1st, I will have those onions put in an old trenches and then I close my trenches on each side of, of the irrigation line. So I've got four lines of onion. They will grow, you know, slowly at first, May 1st and um, May 15th. And maybe around between May 15th and June 1st, I will have some weeding happen. Okay, here we go. So we have weeds, right? So my system is not entirely weedless, but do I take, how do I take care of the weeds is really what counts here. Um, I do not, I do not cultivate. Guess what I will do? I will then take my mulch, my bales, my new mulch, my fresh straw, and I will uh, bring in that straw between the uh, the the, uh, the rows of um, onions and squeeze my onions. It, it's kind of tricky. This will actually be labor intensive, and we'll, you'll take a little fistful of uh, mulch and squeeze. Uh, uh, and smother the weeds, whatever weeds are coming up, um, because it will be below the mulch. And all you have then left after you've done your, your job is four uh, small, I mean, you know, still small size, small rows uh, of onions just emerging out of that mulch you just put in. And they'll finish that way. And I will never have to do anything, never have to cultivate in rows or between the rows. 
um, that will do it. So there is, here is a really good example of a technical way of using mulch after the fact once the plant is developed. And it will do the same thing with cabbage, by, by the way. It's kind of the same sequence. And then at some point, are you taking the mulch that's, that's in the windrows off to the sides of the beds and putting those back into the, into the bed itself? Oh, yes. So let's say, okay, so now we, with July 1st, and we have this magnificent onions. I really can do nice onions. Um, I, of course, onions get all collected all at once, you know, more or less. So I put them into a curing place. And now what do I have? I have um, essentially a, a pretty big size uh, of um, side mulch. I have some mulch in the middle. And all I have to do is to take a rake and even out the mulch. So all that mulch that is now really composting well because it's warmer, with all that old manure from January coming into the center of the bed, mixed in with the old, um, you know, the mulch that was in between my onions, and make it a real nice um, kind of uh, even bed. I might add a little bit of straw, and then I'm ready for summer. And it's a perfect place to do cucumbers or squash, uh, whatever. What about a what about with a crop like say say carrots or or arugula? I mean, how would you how would you go about doing that that would be uh spring or um early spring it would be maybe early um late late summer maybe august for that i will pull the mulch out again to the side and and make a a really clean bed for i mean carrots you know it takes really uh, a clean bed for carrots there's no question so i need to really rake and re-rake until I'm I'm struggling with carrots. It is not easy on me, um, but I'm not sure it has to do with no-till. Um, I'm not a great carrot grower. I wouldn't give me a, a, a good grade on carrots, but, you know, I, I, get, I get good carrots. Yeah. So you're going to pull that mulch aside, and then are you going through with, with some sort of a hand seeder, oh, or is okay. this something so where you're... You know, I, you know, I don't even... I have a seed... Um, uh, I, I have a feeder, a uh, hand, you know, a little bicycle-like, um, I forgot, how do you call those? Yeah, the, I think the Earthway. Earthway, thank you. I have an Earthway, which I've used a couple of years. Now I'm just down to dial feeders. <laughs> I have about 12 of those, and I just, I, I, I'm happy with those. Uh, I'm small enough, even though, you know, I'm small enough that I can do that. And um, by the way, arugula, since you asked about arugula, it's one of my main crops. And I think one of the podcasts, I think the lady from Austin was mentioning arugula being a you know really great crop. I absolutely think arugula is one of those crops. It's just Arkansas. It's hot in summer. I can do arugula nonstop any season, winter, spring, summer. Arugula is is, is a king for me. And are you doing when you do a crop like arugula? Are you doing those in in nice tidy rows so that you yeah. you can do the weeding? Okay. And and you said you're seeding that with a dial seeder. I'm not familiar with that. You know those hand seeders? I mean, they're like gardening tools. I mean, you know, I'm almost, okay. ashamed. I'm almost ashamed to mention it. You know, on a farming uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my what's really cool about uh, my uh, my whole uh, farming system is I can be I'm actually invited by all these gardening clubs. I'm going to do the master gardeners here, the state, whatever, because I can talk about this thing, do it in your backyard. It's wonderful. I am totally like the, I am the ultimate, um, you know, farming to gardening system or even like tiny little backyard urban farming, you know, do it on your rooftop. This is the deal. 
So tell us a little bit about how you're you're actually marketing your produce then. I mean, you're you're near, I think, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. That's right. Which I started the market here thirteen years ago when I moved in. And it's not a really good one. We have thirty five vendors, very, very high quality uh, people, bakers, farmers. We have very strong farmers. Um Yep, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of this uh, deal that we have here. So that takes care of two markets for me, Tuesday and Thursday. And then I have a big uh, market here in this area in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is uh, very old, 45 years old, 100 vendors, big deal. How do I do that on time? And, and those farmers market, is, is that the only outlet you have for your produce? That, no, that's 65% of my growth. I have a tiny CSA. I could go into a CSA. I don't know if I want to be that, you know, uh, kind of a dissenting voice here in the CSA world. Um, I, but I'll say it because, you know, I'm French, right? I, I need to kind of state my opinion here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say I don't like CSA for one, one reason. I think CSA, like the one, I think you have Chris on the uh, outskirt of a big city, absolutely bravo, beautiful. But if you have a CSA, a bunch of CSA guys inside a small village uh, where you have a, a well-developed commerce market, I, I, I sort of call that preempting. Mm. You know what I'm saying about preempting? I'm saying, you know, yeah. CSA, you go to a place and say, oh, you like me, I like you, give me a nice check for 500 bucks, and I'll take care of your needs. It's like, wait a minute, there's a bunch of other farmers out there. <laughs> you know, um, so I'm not a big fan of that for the particular marketplace we have here. And so you do a little bit of that, and then are you also selling to restaurants and grocery stores? Yes. Uh, I have a big co-op um, in Fayetteville that is an absolutely beautiful uh, supporter of, of what we do, local uh, people. Uh, so that takes care of a chunk. And then restaurants. Um, although I would say that I have a very, very hard time in the Midwest uh, finding a chef that understands what we do. When you say understands what you do, understands the no-till side of things or just understanding the whole local food thing in general? Yeah, understanding small batches of uneven, you know, not perfectly calibrated, you know, coming out of a beautiful uh, box of exactly 58 peppers kind of deal. Yeah. Well, and, and I think down in that area, you know, between Fayetteville and Branson, I don't, I wouldn't exactly think of that as being a, a, uh, yeah. a foodie area. You know, that's not the first thing that comes to yeah. mind to me on there. But you'd be surprised. there's something happening now because I mean a group of people trying to change a little bit. All this it's in Bentonville is uh, kind of close enough to us, and Bentonville is now happening. You know, it's starting to resemble uh, a pretty decent foodie place. So I hope at one point some of the chefs will embrace uh, you know things like you know dog fennels and uh, Japanese turnips. You know, uh, things that are, you know kind of like what we like to do. Do you use your your no-till as a marketing tool? Is that something that you talk about in when you're at farmer's market, when you're selling at the grocery store where people are are identifying with that? Or is, is it is it really your produce just alongside of everybody else's? Yeah. I, no, not at all. I don't use that no-till. No-till would not mean a lot to people. I have a hard time just using organic as a as an advantage. Uh, in those crowds, you know, it's primarily the look of your, I mean, I, would, I should say it's not, uh, that's not entirely true. 
But if I want to be successful in this area in the Midwest here, you have to have primarily beautiful vegetables to, to look at uh, on, a, on a market table. That's the kind of number one thing. So I'm curious, when you, you, we talked a little bit about the fact that you, you spend about 15 hours a week yourself working on the farm, uh, doing the production work. How much time are you spending marketing every week? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, well, you know, count 10 hours per farmer's, per, per farmer's market day, which I do three a week during the, the full season, only two during the winter season. So that's another 30 hours. So I have mixed feelings about that because, you know, it is work. It is not as physical. And that is a big, that's a big deal. You know, my body, you know, thanks me for that. Uh, but psychically, I don't know how people feel about, you know, most people I've talked to say it is a big psychic drain to be out there uh, doing farmer's market. And frankly, after doing 20 years of farmer's market, I'm a little bit on a burnout situation here. Yeah. So it's like, you've, you know, you've, you've seen everything that a customer can say that's crazy. <laughs> yes. And I've seen enough of those customers demolishing your, your beautiful stacks of things, you know, just to find the one thing that they want which is right below everything, you know, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and when you say a 10-hour market day, just to be clear, that's a 10-hour day of, of loading the truck, driving to market, exactly. selling, coming back. That doesn't include, like, the harvest. The harvest falls into that other 15 hours, right? Absolutely, yeah. In okay. summer, actually, harvest in summer is 80% of our labor, packing and cleaning. I think that's probably a little higher than what what most farms that I'm familiar with would run into, but it's not it's not way out of line with what you would expect. I mean, it's that's that's where the work is a lot of times. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm maybe the best, you know, most efficient at harvesting and packing. That's not where I would actually, you know, claim any any particular advantage over other people. I I remember you, uh, you know, I, I think I remember you saying something like, I don't know if it's real or not, but. Maybe I'm just dreaming this, but you in one um, class or in one video, weren't you just showing showing your trainees how to do cilantro uh, bunches like at super high speed? Is that you? Yeah, you like yeah. It wasn't it wasn't actually my farm. It was somebody else that I know who was who was achieving you know somewhere up in the neighborhood of 100 120 bunches an hour on the cilantro per person. You know, I believe I believe in efficiency, and if you saw me uh, on my typical, you know, high season day, I'm very much a controlling kind of power. You know, everything flowing very carefully, uh, but not to the extent that um, people are starting to hate me for it. So I, I I'm, a, I'm trying to do. Uh, this is a uh, kind of a really a challenging thing for farmers or the boss. You know, the the farmer. Uh, the, the owners, whatever the main farmer, is to really uh, balance the sense of this is a professional place. We can't just take the breaks every 20 minutes, and it's also a place to enjoy, you know, life. And and and, and you know that that's been my. Uh, but I've been trying to do that. You know, is to alternate between messages of uh, efficiency and messages of you know this is a beautiful life. Let's enjoy it. Well, which I think kind of loops back to when you when you talked about coming to agriculture through through the Nearing's books. I mean, that's it's very much a a lifestyle design piece. It's not a it's not a how much money can I make kind of a piece. But at the same time, I think what Nearing was doing was pretty great. It's also not saying, oh, we don't have money, so we'll beat up, we'll um, drive a beat up truck and and do whatever you can. 
I think there was a sense of that we need to have, we need to be proud of what we do and have a clean house and be able to raise the kids normally if we have any, if we didn't have any. So it was important for me um, growing in this, you know, growing my family in this town to not look like a, like a, you know, a, a margin. I didn't want to be marginalized. I wanted people to, it, it's not been easy. And uh, to this day, I mean, I would go to my, um, my kids going to primary, you know, different grades in school. I, I, it was the hardest thing for me to sell my, my trade, you know. Uh, uh, it's just very hard. People do not really um, consider what we do as a bona fide way of making a living. And to this day, I'm, I'm having an issue with that. Well, I remember my son being embarrassed when he went to school to tell his friends <laughs> that, that his dad was an organic vegetable farmer. That just seemed like about the weirdest thing in the world to him. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and of course it's kind of a painful arc, right? When you're four, you, when the kid's four, they, they love it. And then, you know, when they're, when they're 12, they're just incredibly embarrassed that you would even consider doing such a thing. And then, you know, long about 18 or 19, you kind of get cool again, but yeah, we have to make what we do cool and sexy. I don't know. You know, this is a big thing. We need to do that. I think a lot of that does come out of having, um, you know, having some good work-life balance. I mean, I think I think when people look at at a farm and and all they see is a pile of work, and you know, and and like you said, a, you know, a grumpy farmer who's who's out there just we have to get things done, and that's the only thing that matters. That's not very sexy. No, another part of sexy is money. You know, you, you'll hear me. I think you you know that you know, talk a lot about money, you know, like, and I'm not shy about announcing my numbers. It's not really so much to brag. Is I want to just make an impression on those young minds, say, hey, this don't don't you know, just this is a real thing. This is cool. I mean, this is real money. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, and you you come from a background that was kind of focused on money, right? Oh yeah, right. I mean that. That 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 part, you know, maybe I'm, I don't want to mention the kids because when I when I quit my previous career, I mean, I was in, you know, six digits, you know, a big time. I was a financial advisor, and I took a huge, uh, you know, drop in income. Yeah, that's where I come from. I come from the you know, stockbroker slash financial advisor background. Was that something that was helpful to you when you got into farming to have have that kind of a numbers orientation? Yeah, in one main aspect, which is crop planning, I I, I was always a big time planner. Not necessarily the um, you know the money part is okay. I mean, of course, I'm a good business person, but what I've um, exported from my previous trade into this one is my ability to plan. Uh, you know, Excel charts. A lot of farmers now picking uh, are really you know, moving in that direction. It's great. Um, I measure all my profits. Um, all my crops are measured uh, every year in a profitability per square foot per amount of time, which is a kind of a critical way of um, managing a farm. The reason that my my uh, results, my numbers are that that high is in part because. I have a, a very keen knowledge of my profitability. And one, one, one thing I can say about this, for instance, is that I do not grow corn and I do not grow okra. I mean, just, just kind of, and I do not grow strawberries because they're simply not profitable enough. I mean, I love strawberries. I love, but I will not, you know, sacrifice my, um, 
square footage of soil, of no-till soil, to a crop that can make only half the money that arugula or basil makes on the same space. So when you say when you say measuring profitability by by square foot and by how much time you're putting in, um, you tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, are you doing both of those at the kind of at the same time, or is it is it are those two separate measures? You know, this maybe this crop's making making a lot per square foot, but it's but it's not very labor intensive, or maybe this one. You know, are there are there balancing? The, is there balancing that you do with that? Yeah, this is a, a compounded measure. So it's um, um, the letters will make uh, so many dollars, and I use uh, sales, you know, dollar sales as my main way of measuring things. Um, and but I will measure how long a head of lettuce stay in the ground between the time it's transplanted and the time it's harvested. Which you know, lettuce is a good example because it's so fast. So lettuce will take four to five weeks, right, to function as a crop. So it's only occupying that soil one month. So possibly I'm pushing in things a little bit. In that same amount of square footage, in the same square foot, I can grow actually 12 heads of lettuce during the year. Where if I had garlic there or strawberries, I could only grow one crop of strawberries or one crop of garlic, uh, possibly, you know, coming overwintering in that same space. So quickly enough, uh, in order for you to um, match that head of lettuce with garlic, you would have to sell a uh, you know, a garlic, you know, ten dollars a garlic or something crazy, or, or more than that. So, uh, once you once you know those measures, then it becomes obvious that up to what the market can take, there are certain crops that you need to prioritize. And usually, it's not really the glamorous crop. And I'm talking about things like baby greens or uh, arugula, uh, basil, uh, even cilantro. So usually, a lot of the greens can really pack up that high profit per square foot per time. It's actually something that as I've as I've been talking to farmers over the last year when I a lot of people who are who are really raking in the high dollar per acre values and and just the high dollar values on their farms really are focused on those rapid turnover crops. Um, I mean, that's, that's really something that I've noticed. I and, mean, you know, I mean, there's obviously there's room for something like kale where you can pick it all season, but, but the idea that you can get in and with those, with those salad greens and do multiple crops, get in, get out. Um, this seems to be a real hallmark of a lot of, a lot of very profitable operations. Yes. Not to exclude occasional, right. It, in, in order for um, the other crops to catch up with those uh, quick turnover crops, they have to be incredibly high yielding. Good example of that could be tomato. Cherry tomatoes can actually match uh, those uh, quick turnover crops by being very high yield. Uh, and I, I can um, my a, a basic measure for people out there that in my book, if you can be fifty cents per square foot per month, you are doing extremely well. Any, anything between 50 cents and a dollar per square foot per month is just very high. And I, those are my star crops. And in those, um, you know, of course, you get the arugula, the greens, you know, um, bok choy might be in there. Uh, one thing is Japanese turnip because you can pack them up so tight. That's in there. But occasionally I'll have cucumbers or um, basil, things that are longer, go in there and just uh, match the other guys. Lettuce is absolutely in there, very, very easy for lettuce to, to be in there. Um, but cucumbers or even squash, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to come up with more like traditional crops, uh, will go in there, but it will not be as easy 
in order for a squash or cucumbers to make it to that top tier of all my crops, it will have to be an extremely good year, which means, for instance, I will have to have really all, you know, my, my game all really together in terms of uh, not getting in, in, uh, in trouble with vine borers or having an issue with cucumber disease, whatever. Anyway, so a lot less reliable. So something that I'm interested in that you're kind of alluding at with this idea of, of being able to get in multiple crops per year, you're you're not in the northern half of the country. I mean, when once you get down to Arkansas, you're you're I mean, you're not in the deep south, but you're you're definitely south. Um, how much I wonder if you have a sense for how that influences your ability to do the no-till, because I know up here in, in Wisconsin and even in Iowa, you know, a lot of times getting that soil tilled is the way that you actually get it to warm up a little bit faster or get it to dry out so that you can work it. I'm And I, obviously, you're farming in Arkansas. You're not farming in, in Wisconsin, so you don't have the direct experience. But I'm curious, based on your observations there, how translatable do you feel like a system like this would be if you pushed it up north? Okay, I, I, yes. It's a very valid um, kind of, you know, question, but I have one really kind of a, you know, pretty much a, an obvious um, tool to to provide to you for that, and that's just going in the tunnel, uh, and then just heat up that soil, um, and then keep keep a lot of crops in production in spring in the tunnels, and then wait until it finally warms up to really switch uh, gears and focus on the outside. You know, maybe in June or something, depending on how much time. It is very true that um, if you're not inside a tunnel, you're going to have an issue with soil temperature on a no-till system. Um, absolutely. And is that a, is that an issue that you have in Arkansas? Yes, I already have that because if I want to try to really push, uh, you know, start crops in March, you know, and even I try sometimes late February, I might try to do some kale or some spinach outside. I'm going to really have an issue. Um, you can use wool covers, um, you know, mini tunnels, but it just doesn't work very well. Are you, are you ever, are you ever tempted to just get out there and, you know, just give it a little quick till and not tell anybody? <laughs> no, you know, it would be, it's like, it's like when you just say that, it's like saying, come on, can you just go ahead? And when nobody's walking and nobody's watching you, can you kick your dog? It's high drill. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, not no. That's so. It's my, it's my cherished, uh, you know, a medium that I will absolutely never, never impact. Uh, if I have someone, a trainee of mine, or even a dog walk on my bed, you'll hear me. I mean, I'll be like really, uh, really upset. Um, no, okay. So you you really um, touch on a limitation. I just want to say, uh, extremely. Um, so by the way, I'm not just being put on that. Uh, I have, um, of course, an obvious tool is putting a tunnel on that, and that takes care of things. Um, so I'm just going to get another tunnel. Uh, you know, they're grant for this left and right. You know, some people call me like this last week, saying, Patrice, we have money. Just apply. We have $10,000 for you. <laughs> like, okay, I will do that. So I get, I'm getting myself another big tunnel. Uh, but another way to do to deal with this, which I'm going to experiment with, but my system is not completely fixed in its you know present form. I'm going to try to curve the, uh, the the bed from the side. You know that side I use 
to collect the, the mulch on the side, which is at half foot. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dig it out from within the bed and throw it on the center of the bed to create a raised bed in a sense. Okay. Right. It's going to be a lot of work because by hand, we're talking about 70 beds, which are 125 foot long. That's going to be killer in terms of uh, physical output. But I'm going to start it on one zone, one of my zones, and see if there's a real um, difference in terms of the soil being. But it will never be the same as chilling. And, you know, when you chill, you incorporate all that warm air in the soil. So I will always, I will always be behind in terms of uh, speed uh, of growing plants in April or May. The only two months that I really, really will be behind is those months, maybe March to May. After that, I'm, I, I'm really hard to match in terms of speed and also in fall. Fall is, an, is just a glorious uh, period for me. I mean, it is by far the best um, season for me. Because what happens is the microbiology is really at the heart of my system. So it's dormant in winter. It really takes time. When we talk about soil temperature, that's what we're really saying. The microbiology of the soil is not doing you know, its work, which it takes time to awaken and be there for the plant. But the reverse is uh, in fall, that microbiology does not die very quickly. It takes a long, long time to have that slow dormancy come in. So what I want to say about this is that uh, you will have glorious October and November month in a no-chill system. That's interesting. I mean, it completely makes sense what you're saying. I hadn't, I guess I'd never really thought about the idea. Maybe people are going to listen to this and go, well, aren't Chris Blanchard guy? He's not very smart, but I never really thought about the idea that the, the reason why the soil is slow in the spring is because you're waiting for the biology to get cranking. You know, I always thought of it just as temperatures affect on the plants, but it totally makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned, but I'll just mention it quickly at the end here is that my farm is a really good entry level farm. Someone serious about making a living farming. It's a lot easier to go for a farm which has no equipment than to go for like to, you know, go in there thinking, okay, I need to, uh, spend fifty thousand dollars in you know implements and tractors, and then grows one hundred and fifty to make a living. I'm offering a, a, a farm that you only need ten thousand dollars in small tools, irrigation system, and uh, you know, and go for it and still make a living. So I think it's a pretty good place for some people that just do not want to you know go for a bigger place. All right, Patrice. With that, let's take a turn here and and jump into the lightning round. I and I'm. I'm really interested. You know, the first the first question I ask everybody is, what's your favorite tool? But it doesn't sound like you use very many tools. So I'm really curious what you're going to come up with for that. Oh, absolutely. Not one second of hesitation, this one, the rake. Uh, I'm just in love with my rakes. Now you, said, now, now, you said the rake, and then you said in love with your rakes, plural. Um, yeah. Tell me about your rakes. Well, you know, uh, they're my main tool for pre- preparation, pushing the... Or just pushing, compressing you know, the mulch. Uh, they just, I just constantly working with a rake to just prepare my to prepare my soil. It's my main tool, uh, preparation tool, um, and I, I just love to skim the surface of my soil and just make it ready for my crop. So, 
when I have to do that. Of course, one time else, you know, I, my rake is useless. But I said, I, but easily, my, the rake is my favorite tone. And and anything anything special that you look for in a rake? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like rakes that are, um, you know, good tools. It's so hard to find good tool, uh, good tools. I used to love Sparrow and Jackson tools. I'm not sure they still they still spare injection. I think they're more like Chinese kind of imitations with carrying the name. So I, I'm just uh, I'm hoping some guy out there is listening to me and saying, you know, we ought to have great U.S. made tools for those guys that use manual tools. Have you been at any time, you know, recently in the Lowe's or Home Depot and look at those tools? It's appalling. The, the quality of what they offer, of course, I understand for everyone, but could they have like maybe like a, the next level up? No, they don't. You know, it's just, oh. Yeah, it's kind of a bottom feeder environment out there for tools now. And I, I still miss, I mean, I, I remember when I was first getting into farming and all of the time that I spent just lusting through the Smith and Hawken catalogs. And oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I miss that so much. What happened to those guys? Well, they sold out. Now it's like if you go to Target, there's a Smith and Hawken section right. there. I don't know. Somebody needs to talk to Paul Hawken about this because I, I feel like it was a major abandonment. You know, they, those guys get get really successful, and then some um, corporate, you know, guy shows up and say, "Here is take thirty million dollars and let us have your name." And you know, who's going to say no to that? Yeah. Well, and I think sometimes it's such a script. I mean. We know we know this in small business. It can be such a scramble, you know. And when somebody comes along and says, "Hey, I can, I can, I can take this away from you and, and give you something for it," you go like, "Oh, thank goodness!" You know, right. we'll let you right. source the tools. And uh, so, so with the with the rakes, are you just using like a standard garden rake, or are you using like a you know one of these big wide hay rakes? Or no, no, standard, but it has to be uh, very. I, I like the square. You know, I don't know how to call those, but. The, the one that has like some kind of a rounded shape on top are just useless. Uh, so yeah. I like the old-fashioned square rakes, uh, built well. Uh, occasionally I find one. That's it. Not nothing special. Not too wide. I don't like them too wide. Harder to move around. I mean, you're kind of out here on. I'm not necessarily going to say the leading edge of agriculture, but you're out here on on an edge of agriculture. You're doing something that not a lot of other people are doing, especially at the scale that you're talking about, um, and especially trying to make a living at it. When you need information, like when you're when you're trying to figure something out about your system, where do you turn? I I, I can't I can't do that. I have to come up with things because there is no I don't have peers. Um, I mean, I do have peers, and you know, there's a lot of things around my farm that are just not, you know, uh, specific to no-till. Like, for instance, uh, insect management, you know, things like that, uh, or you know, many other things, or knowing how to germinate spinach or carrots. You know, it's just kind of different techniques that really I can actually uh, pick other people's brains for. And I do have my sort. You know, I have uh, you know the best farmers around me will be my, you know, sources for me and a friend. So, yeah, I, I do ask other. Typically, I'll go to a, to the best farmers um, around me, which I have a few. I'm assuming that most of the farmers around you aren't doing the no-till system that you're doing. No, no. Oh, actually, I shouldn't say that because I, I did have, I have over the years uh, trained many, many people. And some of them had started farms uh, and they are, uh, you know, 
there are people out there that are actually emulating my system and um, doing a really good job with it, being successful at it. They have a hard time not killing sometimes. <laughs> they don't seem to have the same kind of uh, strength. Uh, the, the, the belief system sometimes crumble, and they just uh, kind of they'll just start killing. But um, you know, no, I, I, there are some farms out there that are uh, kind of a good, um, you know, think places that have uh, been inspired by mine. And what's your favorite crop to grow? Okay. Uh, okay, I'll just get, you know, I'll just give you a gut answer. I love peppers. Um, I just love every crop. I mean, I'm just so in love with what I do. But I will say peppers. I don't know why. I just love the plant, the glistening of the the, the, the leaves, the way the peppers, you know, just kind of come up. And I don't know why. It's just, I think it's because the plant is really pretty. It really is a pretty plant. I mean, I... Well... You, you talk about the glistening of the leaves, and I mean, that kind of captures it all right there. Right. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, I mean, when you were getting started in farming, what would what would you have wanted to tell yourself? I would say try to, um, um, the, the biggest mistake I made um, the first year is to not realize that I needed to do more. Uh, it took me about five or six years to know the difference between gardening and farming in terms of uh, income generation. And I, nobody, nobody really told me, that, what are you doing? You are, you, you're just doing a garden. I remember my first market, and this is bizarre because I'm, you know, I'm 36, 37, and I'm, you know, I'm a very uh, put-together, well-put-together financial guy for my previous uh, career. And here I am, totally clueless. I was so lost in the passion of gardening and in all these little experiments about permaculture and doing the styles that I just lost the sense of um, really what it took to make quite a bit of money, which was okay because we started in such a homesteadish kind of way, you know, in a very simple life. But I remember, I remember to this day, um, going to farmer's market uh, in Fayetteville, driving an hour with six bunches of parsley and three bunches of, of cilantro and five heads of lettuce, selling like a bennet in like 45 minutes and driving all the way back with $20 in my pocket. <laughs> and, and, yeah. scream, and screaming that I sold out. I was like, everybody loved what I had. I mean, I just, it took me three years to come out of this sort of coma. <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's a great suggestion for anybody that's that's thinking about making a living at farming. It's really, I mean, whether whether it's understanding, yeah, when we talk about understanding scale, I feel like a lot of times we're thinking about like, oh, you have to have twenty acres or you have to have you know tractors. And but I think I think really understanding that that scale question and what that means for whether you're making a living at farming or whether you're making some movie money on the side. Right. I mean. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I just never had someone say, listen, um, you know, I know you have a lot of savings from your previous life, but, you know, making $3,000 a year is not going to cut it, even though you are, you know, really good, you know, in, in that little uh, farmhouse there, it's not going to cut it. Um, so you have to, you know, align your, um, your farming scale to, again, to the lifestyle that you have decided for yourself. 
And that's really something you need to teach the young kids. Like, okay, how much do you want to net? What kind of farming system do you want? You want mechanized? You want no-till? And then this is how much of a surface you need to calculate. Patrice, thank you so much for a really enlightening and challenging episode. Really appreciate you taking the time today. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 53 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for gross. That's G-R-O-S. I've got a string of events coming up. My Better Farm Boss Employment Workshop in Grays Lake, Illinois is on February 17th. More information is available at purplepitchfork.com slash betterboss. I'll be at the Oregon State University Small Farms Conference in Corvallis on February 20th. And on February 25th, I'll share my full day session, Manage Your Way to Farm Success, at the Moses Organic University. I'll also be at the Moses Organic Farming Conference on the two days following that, talking about herbs and time management. If you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'd enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. Check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on the book. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners, and I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to give us those reviews and referrals to date. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the great guest suggestions that I received through the contact form on the farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I encourage you to keep them coming. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. Thank you.